Hear the word of the Lord from Acts 2, 22 through 47. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, But he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his words were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls." And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Well, a healthy practice for us on the eve of a new year is to look back and look forward. Uh, We want to look back over this past year and see what God has done in us and through us here at Sacred City. Now listen, here's the key. So that we can rejoice in God and glorify him for his mighty work among us. Uh, This pleases God. This is one way that we enjoy God is by rejoicing in the work that he's done in us and through us. It is not an attempt to brag about or boast in our own accomplishments. We don't do this very often at all. I don't share statistics and things like that at our church uh, very, very often at all because um, it, it reeks of hype to me and, and I hate hype and I want all hype out of the church. And so we don't do this very often, but on this eve, uh, I think it's a good thing to to do. And we also look forward in hopeful expectation of what God will do through us in the new year 
so that we can plan and prepare ourselves for what he might have for us in 2018. And today is also the six-year anniversary of our first public worship gathering. So I'm going to take a moment by sharing a little bit of our story and a little bit of my story. I I grew up in a Christian home. Uh, I loved God. I went to church camp. I went to church pretty much any time the doors were open. But in junior high, through a lot of circumstances that I'm not going to go into, pastors leaving, things happening at the church, um, my parents stopped going to church on a week, a weekly basis. And to be really blunt, I began to worship the gods of girls and sports. Um, and it wasn't until late until my, into my senior year of high school that God gripped my heart and drew me back into a relationship with him and his church. It took a, an injury in sports to do that, but that's, how God, that's what God used. And my family at this time began to attend church on a weekly basis again. And during this time, God birthed in me, gave me an immense hunger for himself. I started reading the Bible for the first time in my life. I was volunteering at church in the youth department, and I began to tell anyone who would listen to me about Jesus and what Jesus had done for me. To make a long story short, over the next few years, I began to preach occasionally in the youth ministry. I came on staff as a director of operations in the youth department, which evolved into a junior high youth pastor role, and then eventually I was offered the youth pastor position at another church here in the Quad Cities. I was a youth pastor there for seven years, which is where I met some of you, and we saw God do some rather remarkable things. God grew a group of seven teenagers into one of the largest youth ministries in the Midwest. We saw hundreds of kids baptized. In one night, we baptized 93 teenagers. Many teens and young adults met Jesus through our youth ministry. Then in 2009, I experienced the confluence of three things that brought about a great change in my life. First, I read Don't Waste Your Life by John Piper. This book was like a gateway drug into gospel-centered reformed theology and set me on fire for the glory of God. But it also began to put me at odds with the church where I was serving. Second, I discovered the Acts 29 Church Planting Network and a group of men who preached through the Bible expositionally. That means line by line, verse by verse, word by word. Applying the issues, applying the word of God to the issues of culture and the issues of our personal life. Now listen, every preacher just about says, we only preach the word at this church. We're about the word. We're going to preach the word. But most of the time in our culture today, we've drifted away from preaching verse by verse, line by line through the Bible. And we kind of preach, most of the time preachers kind of preach a sermon and then sprinkle some some. some Um, illustrations and some sermon text in there. And that's not preaching the word. That's not preaching line by line expositionally. Um, And and when I discovered these Acts 29 guys, and there's other guys doing it, but I discovered it through Acts 29. These preachers preached long, exegetical. It means they got everything from the text. It wasn't their own opinions and they proved it by the Bible. They're pulling it out of the Bible and and, and they're getting all their meat from their sermon out out of the Bible itself, out of the text itself. And it was more like, for me, it was more like biting your teeth into a T-bone steak than it was an oatmeal cream pie that I think the sermons that I was preaching were more like. And then third, 
Because of the first two events, I began to see some glaring weaknesses in my youth ministry and the church where I was serving. We weren't doing a great job of making disciples. We were good at gathering a crowd and entertaining people with catchy sermon illustrations and great music, but I discovered that the church was meant to be much more than that. So in my angst, I began to toss around this idea of planting a new church here in the Quad Cities, a church that would be serious about God, serious about the preaching of the word of God verse by verse, and serious about making disciples for the glory of God. I shared this with my family, and they were cautious, but encouraged me. I then shared it with my good friend, uh, Kevin Ryan, who is a part of our church today. I don't know if he's here. He might be serving over there. I don't see him in the crowd this morning. But, and he was b- behind me as well. And then that week, I said, okay, I met with the lead pastor, and I shared my vision for this new church with him. And at first, he was optimistic and encouraging, but then fired me a week later. <laughs> And this knocked my world into a tailspin. I felt called to plant a church, but was totally unprepared. The idea was only a few weeks old in my mind, and now here we are, thrown into the deep end. We had no name. We had no meeting place. We had no plan. We had no real vision. We had very little money and even fewer adults. My wife was pregnant, like six or seven months pregnant at the time with our second child, and now here I was without a job, without a paycheck, without health insurance. What were we going to do? Well, we launched Sacred City (laughs) six days later on a Wednesday night, and over 150 people showed up. It was mostly students and college kids, but that's how Sacred City got started. But I knew, see, I'd gotten saved and I'd been a part of largely non-denominational churches. And I'm just going to say it. The problem with non-denominational churches is they don't have proper, typically proper oversight, proper accountability. There are no higher ups that they have to, account, have, have to be accountable to. And so they can do really, the senior pastor can often do whatever he wants to do. And I knew that I did not want to be like that. I knew I didn't want Sacred City to be like that. I wanted to have accountability and I needed oversight and I needed training myself. So I signed up for what's called an Acts 29 boot camp. And this was an assessment conference to assess potential church planners to join Acts 29. Uh, they bring you in, they assess you and tell you if you're, uh, you know, you're ready or you're not ready, basically. And the conference was a month after we had our first Uh, first gathering for Sacred City. And in this assessment, it was in uh, Louisville. My wife and I flew down. Uh, Three godly, seasoned, biblically qualified church planters sat around a table with us for about three hours discussing our plans, discussing our theology, our theology, our relationships, um, you know, our, our, you know, vision for Sacred City. And this was a nerve-wracking and very difficult conversation. Amanda and I were just, I mean, our nerves were frayed by the end of this conversation. And after three hours, in their words, they told me, Justin, your entrepreneurial and leadership scores are very high. We know we throw you out in the deep end. You're going to figure it out. You're going to plant a church, and, and, and you'll get a lot of people. 
but we're worried about the type of church you're going to plant because we're concerned about your heart. These men were more concerned about the state of my soul than they were about what kind of numbers I could bring to the network. And that's very unique. They didn't let my small amount of external giftedness overshadow the glaring weaknesses that I possessed in my soul. And that was the most sanctifying conversation that I've ever had in my life. I'm very thankful today for the Acts 29 network and those men who love me enough to tell me, no, don't plant the church, not yet. But now you probably see the problem. We had already planted the church and we were not about to let 150 people down. I, I told these assessors, I said, I've got 150 people that call me pastor. And most of these people were new, brand new believers. I'm like, I'm not just going to bail on them. I can't just bail, bail on them. I, I, you know, I, I'm committed to them and I want to be there for them. I don't just let people down like that. And they, they pastored me and they counseled me and they said, we understand that, but we think this is going to be the best thing for their long-term health and for your long-term health. You've never been a part of a church like this. You've never been discipled like this. You've never been shepherded like this. So how are you going to create something you've never been a part of? It was wis- there was a lot of wisdom in that conversation. So they recommended that we close the church down and we move and complete a church planting residency training program with another Acts 29 church where we could be discipled by some biblically qualified elders who could shepherd our soul. See, another thing, I grew up in denominations or non-denominations, whatever you want to call it, that were very weak in discipleship. They, had, they could do a church gathering on Sunday morning and you could come in and you could feel excited and get a little pep talk and really get excited about Jesus. But I never had a, a man come alongside of me and say, come here, brother, let me walk with you and teach you the ways of Jesus. Like, do you realize how big of a fool you are half the time? I needed somebody to tell me that, right? And instead, because I could talk, and I was, I was at Augustana at the time, and I was bringing a lot of athletes. I was wrestling over there. I was bringing a lot of athletes to the church, and, and, and I was kind of a leader. I was already a naturally gifted leader. What they instead did is they let me lead, and they gave me a microphone, right? It's probably not the best thing to do. Now, you, I said a lot of dumb things, okay? Some of them are probably still on the internet somewhere. I, don't go look, please. Please save me. But the weakness of these discipleship models is they're not relationally based. They're not intergenerational. They don't hook up old people with young people and, they don't, and, and they're very isolated, okay? And so they don't really make disciples. They make really big, busy religious consumers, And so I had never been discipled and now I was going to lead a church that made disciples. How was I going to do that? I needed to be discipled. So we, I'm not going to say, listen, I'll be honest. This was the most difficult decision or one of the most difficult decisions I've ever had to make. At first we said, there's no way. Then after much prayer and deliberation, we decided to humble ourselves and take their advice. The next Wednesday night, we announced our decision to the congregation and we stopped, immediately stopped our weekly gatherings. And as as soon as my wife, Amanda, had our second child, Zoe, um, we moved to Omaha, Nebraska. That's where they uh, requested us to go. I had no idea of anything good in Omaha. I just driven through it on my way to Colorado and seen some silos and thought, oh no, not that place. 
They moved us to Omaha, and our time in Omaha was incredibly difficult. We lived in a small third-floor apartment with two kids, hauling groceries to a third-floor apartment with two kids is a nightmare. Let me just tell you. We burned through all of our life savings as I was only working part-time at Whole Foods while I completed my education in the church planning residency. And we were adjusting to parenting two children's and children's children <laughs> in a new city without any family. It was very difficult. We were born and raised in the Quad Cities. This is the only time that we've lived outside the Quad Cities. And we were all felt like we were all alone. It was very hard. A few People from Sacred City actually moved with us there too, some young, young folks. But at the same time, a man and I both felt God's nearness like we never had. We knew that this was what God had called us to do. This was the first time in our Christian life that we had elders who we could look up to and were taking an active role in our discipleship. It was the first time in a decade that I was out of a leadership position in a church and my soul thrived. It's difficult to live a Christian life when every Sunday or every Wednesday you have to preach. There's this pressure on your soul all the time to lead people and to make disciples. And sometimes the the information you're getting from your books and and from the Bible, it isn't food for your soul. It becomes um, food for your sheep. And you're thinking constantly about how can I package this? How can I preach this? How can I share this? What does this person need? Well, for the first time in a decade, I was out from under that pressure and I was just eating the word and studying the word for myself and my, my soul came alive. I had time to read and study like never before. I developed deep friendships and learned how the gospel can shape a person's entire life. I'm not being overly dramatic when I say that our time in Omaha changed our lives. If you knew me before then, you know. It was about eight months into our time where God started to speak to me about Sacred City. Uh, It felt like the first eight months were very personal for me and for Amanda. God was really working on our heart and he was killing false identities and false idols that we had served for so long. And then over the next year, God started showing me how we wanted to bring the work that he had done in our soul, how we wanted us to bring that home to the Quad Cities. See, I was deeply bothered by the idea that a guy with a million bucks could start a successful church. I was bothered by this idea that you, all you had to do is pay a band pay a speaker, buy a building, market it, brand it, and it fills up. It's kind of the field of dreams mentality of church planting, right? If you build it, they will come. Just put the appropriate amount of money into it, and you're going to get a good, sizable piece of the church market in the Quad Cities. I started thinking, is that really a successful church? Is that really even a church? And God, as I was wrestling with these questions, God just kept bringing me back to the scripture that we read today. Acts chapter two, verses 22 through 47. And in this text, we learn what I'm gonna call just the recipe for the church. It's a simple recipe. It's got basically three ingredients, gospel, 
community, and mission. That's the recipe for the church. And I want us to take a look at it this morning. So if you've got your Bibles, please open it up. Follow along with me. We're going to start in Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Acts is right after the four Gospels. So if you need help finding it, that's where it's at. Acts chapter 2, verse 22. When you're there, say there. I didn't hear nobody, so I'm waiting. When you're there, say there. All right, there we go. Or you're liars. Uh, We want him to hurry up, so I'm just going to say there. All right, here we go. Verse 22. Men of Israel... Now, let me give you some context real quick, okay? Jesus has been dead. Jesus has resurrected. Jesus told his disciples to go wait 40 days in prayer and wait for the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has been given on the day of Pentecost. And these guys start, we see some miracles and these guys start speaking in tongues. And now the apostles kind of step out of the upper room. And this is kind of the beginning stages of the church. All right, this is the context of where we're at. Men of Israel, and Peter stands up and begins to preach his first ever gospel sermon. Okay? This is what he's doing. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, it's a historical person, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. Look, as you yourselves know, so here's the context. He's in Israel. These men that were there, they'd all seen Jesus with their own eyes. It's not like us who see him with the eyes of faith and see him through by reading historical documents like the Bible. Like that's not, these men saw Jesus, they witnessed Jesus, they saw Jesus do amazing miracles. That wasn't up for debate at that time. They condemned Jesus as a heretic, but they looked and they said, well, this guy does do miracles, okay? So Peter starts out by just reminding them of the historical reality of the person of Jesus and the fact that he did many mighty miracles. And he says to them, as he's preaching to them, you guys know all this. This is all common knowledge for you. Keep reading. This Jesus delivered up, now this is interesting. He's not delivered up according to your wicked plans. He's not saying that to the Jewish people. He's not delivered up just by the plans of lawless men. He's not delivered up by the plans of Pilate or the plans of Herod or the plans of the Jewish Sanhedrin. Look what he says here. Look, this is the the gospel. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Now, none of us make definite plans, right? Right? We make plans and then our car breaks down, right? We make plans and then it snows six inches, right? And then we have to change our plans, right? But God, his plan is what? Definite. It happens exactly the way he wants it to happen. In the Garden of Eden, he had the cross in his mind. Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. The cross was not an accident. The cross was not plan B. All right? The cross was God's one and only plan. Look, but, so God is sovereign, but humans are also still responsible. Look, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. That's the cutting That's the sharp edge of a gospel sermon. God and his sovereignty planned it, but you did it and you're guilty. Keep reading. But 24, God raised him up. 
loosing the pangs of death because, oh man, I love this. It was not possible for him to be held by it. Now, what does that mean? Jesus was crucified and died, but it was not possible for him to remain dead. Why? Because he was sinless and death is a penalty for sin. And because Jesus Christ was sinless, death could not hold him. It was impossible for him to stay, stay dead. For David, so now Peter, because he's a good Jewish man who knows his Old Testament, he now quotes Psalm 16, 8 through 11. And he says this, for David says concerning him, a Psalm of David, I saw the Lord always before me, for he's at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. Look, this is what David said. For you, God, will not abandon my soul to Hades. You won't, you won't let me stay dead or let your Holy One see corruption. You're not going to let his body decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. So thousands of years before, David prophesied this. David said this. Well, look, what, look how Peter um, teaches and contextualizes this for the audience. He says this, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried. Okay, so this is what, Peter, this is what Peter's saying. David said, you're not going to let your holy one see corruption and stay dead. But Peter says, but David stayed dead and his body saw corruption and they even know where his tomb is. Keep reading. He was both died and was buried and his tomb is with us today. Being therefore a prophet, that David was a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. So it's part of the Davidic covenant was there's always going to be a king on his throne, he, David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. David wasn't speaking about his own freedom from death and freedom from decay. He was pointing forward to the future king that would sit on his throne, Jesus Christ, who was a descendant of David. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he, Jesus, was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption because he was resurrected. Verse 32, this Jesus, God raised up. And of that, we're all witnesses. So he's, this is the most spectacular time in the church. They, everybody knows who Jesus is. Everybody saw him do miracles. And now, and we later learned from Paul that over 500 people witnessed the resurrected Jesus. And so Peter's just like, this is common knowledge, folks. This is common knowledge, but let me contextualize it and teach you what it means that he is the Davidic king. He is, well, we'll see in a minute, Lord and Christ. Keep reading. This Jesus God raised up, and of that were all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, the Holy Spirit, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So the, these men, uh, they, they're speaking in tongues and they say, you can see the Holy Spirit poured out on these men through this. You also see the boldness of Peter as an evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit. Peter abandoned Jesus, ran away from Jesus at the cross, resurrected Jesus, had to go find Peter and say, Peter, I know you screwed up, but I've got grace for you and I've got plans for you, right? Go feed my sheep, go make disciples, right? Go do your thing. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to be with you. And now Peter all of a sudden finds his backbone. 
right? He finds his spine. He gets his gumption. All of a sudden, Peter now is not running away from, you know, he, he betrayed Jesus to a little, in front of a little girl when she was warming the fire. Do you know Jesus? I don't even know this guy. And now all of a sudden, Peter's up there, and he's got some steel in his spine, and he's saying things like, you know, Jesus, the one you crucified, he's Lord and Savior. He's the king. Where did this guy come from, right? It came through the Holy Spirit moving into his heart, probably converting him and inspiring him to do these things. Now, let's keep reading. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, now he's quoting Psalm 110, verse 1, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies at your footstool. David's not speaking to himself. David's speaking about Christ, about Jesus. Verse 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Jesus both Lord, that's the king, ruler, and Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. It's a sharp edge. And what's that sharp edge meant to do? Verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Like, we did it. We're guilty. We're sinners. What now? And Peter said to them, repent. Repent means, easiest way to say it, I'm walking this way, I do an about face, and I turn and change directions. It's not just a confession, oh, I'm sorry for that, and keep walking this way. Repentance is a change in heart, a change in mind, and a change in direction. Peter says, repent and be baptized. Every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that enabled them to speak in tongues, the same Spirit that enabled Peter to find his backbone. This Holy Spirit will come into you and convert you and change you. Verse 39, for the promise, this promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. See, kind of missional implications here. It's not just for Israel. It's not just for the, the educated. It's for your kids and it's for those who are outside the walls of Jerusalem. It's for those out in the world. Everyone, look, whom the Lord our God calls to himself. God is calling people to himself. God is awakening sinners. God is bringing people into his kingdom. And what, what's our job, like Peter, to preach the gospel, to share the gospel, to tell people repent and believe in the work that Jesus has done and get baptized? Verse 40, and with many other words, Peter bore witness and continued to teach them, exhort them, train them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. He's saying, don't follow the world, don't follow your peers, follow Christ. So those who received his word, so we see, listen, God is appointing people for salvation 
Who does he appoint to salvation? Those who received his word. See, there's both things are going on. God's sovereignty, human responsibility. Peter preaches the gospel. The gospel lands on those whom God has called to himself and they receive the word. Like the, the parable of the four soils that Jesus taught. So those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about three thousand souls 140 believers give or take multiplied through one sermon through the power of the holy spirit and the power of the gospel and 3000 people come to Christ in one day now in this text we see something very important church planting is actually it's not about having a lot of money and just building a building and just hiring people. Church planting is actually planting the seed of the gospel into the soil of a particular culture and trusting the sovereignty of God to bring about a thriving church. The gospel message itself does the work. We herald it, we proclaim it, but the gospel does the work. God appoints, God saves, God changes, God sends the spirit God does the work. So Peter here, he preaches the gospel, the people believe it, and about 3,000 people get baptized in one day. Now, I'm gonna say, that is an amazing move of God. Praise God for that. But there's more. Listen, salvation isn't meant to be a one-time experience between you and God. Our conversion brings about a real dynamic change in our souls and in our normal everyday life. Our lives change and they're meant to change drastically. When you meet, when you meet God, your life has to change. Ultimately, you've got a new family now. Look at verse 42. So this is right on the heels. Guys, I'm, let me pause. This first section, I think most churches understand what we just, a little bit, what we just read, okay? Preach the gospel, get people saved. That's what's really important, right? That's why we, we try to pack out Sunday gatherings and we, we, people have crusades and they do it. But here's the problem. That isn't an isolated text on its own. That's in a whole narrative. That's in a whole book of the Bible, but it's also, it's in the Bible itself. It's in the whole book of the Bible, but it's also in a chapter. And that's like step one to making disciples. Preach the gospel, the gospel does the work. But right on the heels of it, look what happens. Verse 42, and they, who are they? All of those who just got saved. 3,000 people. And they devoted themselves Okay, pause. Here's the message of, of many mega churches, of many conferences, of many worldwide evangelism events. Come to Christ. He'll give you everything you've ever wanted, eternal life. That's all he's asking of you. That's it. Come now and you'll experience life with God forever. That's it. You don't have any of this 
Come to Christ, experience the power of the gospel, get filled with the Holy Spirit, and it's going to lead to a new devotion. What is devotion? It means a commitment. It means a passion to keep going and going and going, right? You have to be devoted to get through college. You have to be devoted to be successful in your job or to be a good employee. You can't just get up when you want to get up, right? You can't just go when you feel like going. Immediately when these folks are converted, they devote themselves to something new. Maybe before they were just devoted to their family or devoted to their job or devoted to what, their kids. Now they're devoted to other things. And what are they devoted to? Look. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The preaching and teaching of the apostles, their pastors. And the fellowship, that's the community. The word there in the Greek is koinonia, right? It means fellowship, it means community. The gospel did the work and the gospel created a new community, a new family that God has now adopted them into their family and he hasn't just saved them for eternity, he saved them for eternity and put them into a new family to now live out new life and new out, live out new rhythms of that life. Look, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread. They're eating together, they're taking communion together. And look, I love this, most people pass by this, and the prayers, not praying. They don't devote themselves just to praying. The prayers. That, what is, it's talking about, it's really talking about liturgy. Memorized prayers. There was a set, the Psalms specifically are the prayers that you go to the book of Psalms to learn how to pray. You don't learn how to pray just by extemporaneously talking to God. I know people have told you that. That is part of prayer, but that's not where you learn how to pray. We pray foolish things when we pray on our own right? My, when I'm listening to my kids pray, half of it, even last night, I was like, oh, well, I'm going to let that one slide. They devoted themselves to the prayers. That's why one of the reasons we have liturgy on Sunday morning, we have public confessions of faith. Some people get this, in their no, this notion in their mind that because we've planned it and we've prepared it and we put it on screen, it's somehow not genuine. No, no, no. We've been taught that coming to Sunday morning is about expressing our worship to God. That's only half of it. Sunday morning is also about us being formed in the image of God and formed in our worship of God. Our prayers are meant to teach you how to pray. They're meant to form us. It's spiritual formation, not just spiritual, spiritual expression on Sunday morning. So they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to devoted themselves to community, a new community, a radically diverse people from all different backgrounds, all different races, all different socioeconomic backgrounds, socioeconomic brackets. They devoted themselves to the apostles, to the community and the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And you know what happens when diverse people get together and start devoting themselves to living in community centered around the gospel? Verse 43, and awe. Fear, not fear like I'm scared of that. Fear like, whoa, whoa, awe came upon every soul. That's what I want for Sacred City, awe. 
and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together. You hear that? All who believed were together. Not around a TV screen. Not on the internet. Not all who believed were Facebook friends who saw each other in real life occasionally. All who believed, those who had been shaped and received the gospel, devoted themselves to being together. Even when it's negative four outside. I'm going to throw that in there just for good measure. If you're watching on the internet, I'm not shaming you. I'm glad you're doing that. In your pajamas. Whatever. They were together and they had all things in common. Now it's important for me to say here, this is not some form of communism. They weren't forced to give all of their resources together. Those who had more than they need supplied the needs of those who lacked. This was not, you know, promoting irresponsible behavior or anything like that. It wasn't forced. It was a, it was a community that was generous enough to say, you know what, I don't really need that second thing. I'm going to give it to you. You know, I've got more than I need. I'm going to provide for your needs. It's a very generous community. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, this is not some kind of vow of poverty where I'm selling everything I own to give to somebody else. No, it's the things that I don't need, the extras that I have, I'm going to sell them and make sure that my brother, my new brother in Christ, who's now closer to me than my blood brother, I'm going to make sure that their needs are met, that I have, I am now my brother's keeper. I am now responsible for my brother and my sister. And we read all about it in Jesus' parable. I can't just look at him and say he needs food and go, well, I'll pray for you, brother. He doesn't need prayers. He needs bread. Buy the bread, right? Sell what you have. Give the money to the poor. That's what, that's what, that's, that's what we're meant to do now in a new family. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing to the proceeds to all as any had need. And look what happened. Now, pause. Gospel creates gospel people, right? The, the, the Jesus doing what Jesus did in his life, death, and resurrection, when we receive it through the Holy Spirit, creates people who live like Jesus did, right? Why do these people all of a sudden just go, hmm, let's just join together in community now? Because that's exactly how Jesus lived his life under the power of the Holy Spirit. He lived in an intimate community with his disciples, he walked with them. He ate with them. He prayed with them. He did all these things with them. And so now when the spirit of Jesus comes into new people and causes them to be born again, they live like Jesus did in community. That's what they do. What we're going to see also, they live on his mission. And day by day, because they're living in this community, centered around the gospel, living this generous lifestyle, and day by day, Attending the temple together, that's basically the worship gathering we've got here, like this, to public preaching and teaching. And, hold on. Now, church is meant to be one day a week. Day one of church, it's more than one day a week. Attending the temple together and what? and breaking bread in their homes. 
right? They're meeting at the church and they're also meeting in their homes. I'm going to say, this is where we got the idea of missional community. We didn't come up with it on our own, right? They received their food with glad and generous hearts. So everything they received, this is worship. All of life is worship. This is receiving everything that we've got. We know it's a gift from our sovereign God who's given it to us. Praising God, having favor with all the people. And look at this. And the Lord, the sovereign Lord, the resurrected Jesus, added to their number, not just every Sunday, day by day, those who, and I love this term, who were being saved. Right? It's not just an instantaneous thing. It is instantaneous, but it's a lifetime. We're going to be being saved until Christ comes back or until we die. Then we're fully saved. This is church. Nothing less. This is the biblical concept of church. It's not a building. It's a gospel-centered people living in community and on mission for the glory of God. If you notice in here, it's really not that spectacular, right? They obviously didn't have electric instruments and projectors and smoke machines and fog, right? They didn't have lasers. It's normal. You have teaching, you have preaching, you have fellowship, community, food, sacraments, prayer, giving, praising God and leading others to come to know the love of this gracious dad. That God is now not our judge. He's our loving father who sent his son to save us and he's adopted us into our family. We got a new family now. That's real church. A gospel-centered family on the mission of God. So this is why, kind of how, we structured Sacred City Church around missional communities. Communities of 10 to 30 people who gather together weekly around the gospel, who learn together, who study together, who eat together, who pray together, who celebrate together, share life together, and live on mission together. Then on Sundays, our MCs gather together around the gospel liturgy to celebrate the work that God has done in our missional communities and in our city all week long. Now, six and a half years ago, my family moved back to the Quad Cities to try out this idea of a gospel-centered missional church. We wanted to make gospel-centered disciples that looked like this. So when we started our first missional community, we launched it, we launched the missional community without any public gathering attached to it. And then our missional community quickly multiplied and then it multiplied again. And on January 1st of 2011, we officially launched our public Sunday gathering right here in the Junior Theater with 69 adults and 20 kids in attendance. Over the past six years, we have now grown to a church of 13 missional communities. We've baptized 107 people. We baptized 11 this past year. We've seen the gospel bring many people into God's family. And we've seen the gospel also send out many people uh, out on his mission in our city. 
and beyond. We've been very busy living in community and making disciples who make disciples for the glory of God. So much so that usually I don't even do sermons like this very often. What's your plans for next year? Same as my plans for last year. Same as the year before. Same as, year, same as day one on Sacred City Church. We want to make disciples. We want to plant churches. We want to renew the city. What else do you need to know? We don't need to talk about this again, do we? Well, we do need to talk about it. We forget. We drift away from it. This past year, we sent out our first ever church plant into Moline, Illinois. From day one, we've been supporting church planting through giving. We give 10% of our finances to church planting. But this year, we sent out 50 people and $138,000 with Sam Schmidt. And by God's grace, Sacred City Moline has doubled in their first year. They baptized five people this year, and the Lord has given them a beautiful and historic 100-year-old church building with plenty of space for them to grow into in the years ahead. We should rejoice in this, but we should also acknowledge that this past year has been one of the hardest, and specifically planting this church in Moline has been one of the hardest things that we've ever done as a church. The 50 people that we sent were some of the best musicians, children workers, MC leaders, and deacons that we had. With their absence, we struggled. And you might not, if you're you're not really in it, you might not have known how bad we struggled, but we struggled. The band went without a drummer for several months. If you remember this time, I remember. I felt like I was in the desert. Our kids' ministry felt understaffed and out of space. If you're a kids' worker, you probably remember those times. And then on top of all that, we had 11 key members and leaders get moved out of the area this year by their career. 11 members. We sent 50 over there, and 11 of our members that were involved in everything and leading and leading missional communities got got moved away because of their career. It was an exhausting first half of the year. We felt thin. We felt stretched. A lot of us were going, I don't know about this church planning thing. It's pretty, it's pretty painful to feel our, to see our friends leave and not see them very often. It's pretty, pretty difficult. So this year became a year for us to get healthy again, a year to focus on our foundation and infrastructure to shore some things up and prepare for the future. We spent a lot of time talking with our leaders about getting and staying healthy physically, emotionally, and spiritually. So we said, let's focus on our infrastructure and let's work some things out. So we remodeled the entire interior of this theater, adding new chairs, upgraded HVAC, new paint, new carpet, new tile. We also remodeled another cottage for our kids, doubling our available space for the 75 or so kids we have here each Sunday. We hired Ann Walden to be our deaconess of kids ministry. And she's done a great job at getting our ministry more organized and better staffed for the discipleship of our kids. There's been a lot going on this year, but much of it is taking place behind the scenes and under the surface. We ordained three new pastor elders to oversee the ministry just a few weeks ago. You don't, most of us don't realize how big that is, but basically That's been one of my primary jobs for the past three or four years is training up these men to become elders. And so it was a huge, huge day for us. We gave $60,000 to the work of church planting in the Midwest and beyond this year. 
Our efforts in Kenya through Joshua and Fishers of Men Ministry brought about the birth of two new churches, one of them in and among Muslims who are seeing great, uh, they're reaching Muslims for Christ and it's been outstanding. Uh, Joshua has also transitioned all of the churches in Kenya uh, that he oversees to, to the missional community model that we have here at Sacred City. And one of them has grown from 65 adults to 200 in this past year. It's important for us, see, to look back and to remember and to thank God for his provision to us. He has met every one of our needs. Our stage is full with new band members and two drummers. We've got many new kids workers. We have 33 leaders training in Porterbrook right now. And one of the most fascinating statistics for me that we can rejoice in is last December, our weekly average attendance was 232 souls. This December, our average attendance was 236. Four more people. (laughs) Now, hold on. When you add in Moline, it's 325. That is almost a hundred person increase over last year and works out to a 40% increase of attendance year over year, 40%. That's the most growth we've ever had in the history of our church other than the first year. This is one of the reasons we plant churches, people. This is why we do it. As so many churches across our country are shrinking and closing the doors, We can be thankful to God for his blessing upon Sacred City this past year. But it's also important for us to look forward. As I've been praying over the past few months, I have been deeply burdened for those that I'm discipling. Those who don't yet know Christ or those who say they know him, but they're not following him in any type of consistent manner as a part of his church and on his mission. I've been begging God to send a revival. What is a revival? A revival is a powerful, I think we see it here in Acts. This is a, this is a taste of what revival is. A revival is not, let me tell you this, and I'm going to get into this later. It's not something you can just schedule. If you've ever seen that, right? Revival here, Sunday morning. Well, that, no. Right? God's like, oh, I hope I can make it. Right? Like, <laughs> we don't set that and then he just, you know, checks the schedule. A revival, listen, is a powerful movement of God through the gospel and the Holy Spirit that makes people hungry for God and hungry for the things of God and encourages them to follow him in community and on mission. And after we finish 1 Peter in a few weeks, We'll be back in 1 Peter next week. We've got a few more weeks left. After we finish 1 Peter in a few weeks, we're going to spend the next couple of months talking and studying about this concept of revival. We're going to ask God to move in us and through us here in the QC for his glory and our good. That said, so I want you guys to hear this. Like I am a missionary. I've got people that I'm on mission to and I've been frustrated in the past in the past year, because I'm not seeing the fruit that I want to see, right? And I know God is sovereign, and I'm begging him to change these people's lives, that I'm wanting to see them come and worship Jesus, be a part of a community, and be on his mission. And this kind of angst that I'm feeling for 
the discipleship of the people that I'm in relationship with, I, I think that, that God wants us to begin to cry out to him for a great move of God in our city. That's where we're at. I've never said that kind of thing from the stage before. I'm asking God that 2018 would be the year, listen, we double through discipleship. I am not saying that about this Sunday morning gathering. I don't want just a big crowd. I've already said that. I don't think it could happen, but even if this crowd, this group never grew in size, we only doubled through our influence in the city, through our missional communities, our missional communities multiply. That would be okay with me. I want to see God move in the lives of people who are on the fringes, who are barely know God or barely tasting God. They don't really know him like they're meant to know him in community and on mission. I want more people following Jesus in our missional communities. Now listen, for this to happen, we have to look right here in Acts chapter two. The gospel, empowered by the Holy Spirit to live in community and on mission. That means some of us, all of us, are going to have to restructure some of our lives. We're gonna have to restructure our lives around the gospel, community, and mission. We need to start praying that God would show us who we need to be discipling. Listen, look at me. If you're a Christian, you're a disciple who's been called by God to make disciples. I should be able to walk up to you and say, who are you discipling? And you give me a name. Who doesn't know Christ and you're on mission to? And you give me a name. Everyone in this room, from a first, you maybe got saved yesterday and you're one day old Christian born again believer. You're on his mission. You've been grafted into his mission. You're 90 years old. You, I, could, I could ask the same thing to you. Now listen, we can't do that if our life is surrounded by our own comfort and we stay inside in our own little Christian bubble, our own little bubble all the time. Some of us, that means you join a racquetball league or you join a new CrossFit gym or you pick up a new hobby so you begin to meet people who don't know Christ. Some of you, it might mean bringing a lunch and sitting down and eating lunch uh, with some coworkers. It means prayerfully asking God, who do you want me to disciple this year? When I say I want us to double through discipleship, I want every single person to be discipling at least one person to come Follow Jesus in community and on mission. That's all it takes. All of us, one person. And what I know is there's some people who are, who are gifted evangelists and they're gonna have five or six, 10, 12 people this year, right? Now it doesn't mean we can't produce the fruit. We have to be faithful to do the thing that are, the people we're sharing with, they might not accept Christ. They might walk away from Christ. It might feel like we're throwing seeds out on hard ground. That happens, okay? I don't want any of us to feel guilty, but I want us to have it in our minds. Here's who I'm discipling. Here's who I'm praying for. Here's who don't know Christ. Here's who I'm praying for. We have to have that as Christians. We are missionaries. We need to be pursuing a relationship with these folks. It might take a year. You might go take them out for a drink or take them out for food a dozen times this year and not see any fruit. Pursue them, love them, be, in, be on mission to them. Invite them into your missional community. Invite them here on Sunday morning. Invite them to hang out with your other Sacred City friends so they experience the community. 
But for some of us, it just means that you need to carve out a night of your week to make it a priority to be a part of a missional community. You see from this text here, community is not like an extra add-on to the Christian life. It's vital. It's vital to living out our faith. So I'm praying that in 2018, that it would be the year where you take your faith seriously. You join the church. You join missional community. You live out the mission of God in our city. As we come to the table this morning, that's what I want you to be thinking about. Let's double through discipleship. Let's trust God with all the fruit. Let's be faithful, living in community and on mission, prayerfully pursuing people to share the gospel with. And I want you to think as you come to the table this morning, begin to think already, who is it? Who has God called me to be on mission to? In your workplace, in your school, in your neighborhood, in your family. Who is God calling me to disciple? Oh, I'm not ready. Yes, you are. You have the spirit of God in you. You have a community that can help you. See, this this morning's about. It's about looking backward and worship. God's been so faithful to us. He's met all, every need this year. God obviously met all of our needs in Christ. All of our sins can be forgiven. We can walk with God. We can receive the Spirit. We can get the spine that Peter had through the power of the Holy Spirit. We also look forward in hope. What could God do in 2018 if we restructure our lives around gospel, community, and mission? What could he do? Father God, I want to see a move like Acts 2 here in the Quad Cities people that don't know you. Jesus, this is what you're about. You said, even in your advent, the people that sit in darkness see a great light. We want our friends and our neighbors and our family members, the barista that we see every day, we want them to come to know you. And that only happens through your predestined, foreordained, definite plan and the foreknowledge of God through the power of the Holy Spirit. We know that's what you do. But we know in the Quad Cities right now, you have people that you have handpicked. You have people who have you prepared their hearts to receive the word with gladness and you've put them in our path. Would you help us be faithful? Would you help us have a burden for them? Would you help us get out of our comfort zone and do some things we're not comfortable doing and, so that we could see your mission move forward here in the Quad Cities? God, this isn't just a one-time sermon. We're going to be thinking about this and prayerfully pursuing this all year long. Help us make disciples this year for your glory and our good. As we come to your table, we're just once again reminded how you sacrificed your own comfort. You gave your own body to see this mission move forward. <sighs> Through your sacrifice of your body and of your blood, your very self, We've been adopted into the family of God and filled with the Holy Spirit. And so we rejoice as we take the bread that is your body and the wine or the juice that is your blood. And we eat this in remembrance of you and you meet us here. You're spiritually present here with us in this meal. So eat this in worship, worship for your past faithfulness 
and worship for your future faithfulness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.